Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Brian Merchant. Brian is the technology columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the author of the national bestseller, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. He's the co-founder of Terraform, Vice's science fiction outlet, and the founder of Gizmodo's automation project, examining AI and the future of work. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wired, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, Fast Company, and beyond. He lives in Los Angeles, and we are going to be discussing his latest book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. This is a a concept and and a book that's near and dear to my heart. Everybody who knows me knows for years, decades, I've been calling myself a a self-confessed Luddite. I I refuse to, I'm I'm the last person to adapt to anything. I hate most apps. I don't have email on my phone. I try as best I can to, to live digitally connected, but very analog. So this this reading this book was very much up my alley. I learned a lot. So Brian, I want to welcome you to the deep dive. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So the the best place to start is with in the, at the beginning. Obviously, you've spent a lot of your professional career thinking about technology issues, spending time in Silicon Valley. What is it about this particular movement? that you felt warranted this type of, of really um, deep, deep study and incursion? Yeah. So I became a tech journalist around the end of sort of the first decade of the century, so the end of the aughts, as we might call them. And this was still kind of in the... Uh, halo era for silicon valley right where you know google's doing no evil everything's great you know these companies are building the future and so my job was kind of inaugurated uh when this was the prevailing sentiment and you know it never totally sat uh, completely you know comfortably with me but i but i you know I, I feel like there were years there where few people rocked the boat too much, myself included. Um, and it wasn't until the, the 2010s um, that you start to see some more concerted and critical um, perspectives kind of broaching the mainstream. There have always been critics, always people doing great, great work trying to ring, ring the alarm on some of this stuff. Um, but... There, you people start asking more questions about, well, you know, what's Amazon really doing here? How is it getting packages to your house so quickly, so cheaply? What's really fueling the rise of, you know, on-demand uh, apps where you can get an Uber to your to your, to your door so quickly? What's going on the on the on the other side of this? And we start to see more of the labor stories start to come out, um, and, and and sentiment doesn't shift. Really dramatically until the the so-called tech lash and Cambridge Analytica with Facebook and all that, but there is this sort of sea change going on, um, and 
I it was kind of at the same time stumbled upon this academic paper that was looking into the history of the Luddites. Um, my, my wife is an academic um, and, and she had brought, brought this paper home that was, you know, making the case that, you know, the Luddites um, had very good reasons for uh, for protesting machinery. As far as I knew, you know, the word Luddite meant somebody who hates technology, somebody who doesn't get technology, somebody that does all the things that you, you know, a lot of the things that you just said that I, I shun them, I don't want any part of them, or they get angry by technology and just want to smash it because they don't get it. They just want it out of their lives. Well, this turned out to be uh, much more complicated than that. And reading the stories of the Luddites, I was pretty quickly hooked because it seemed to be a really interesting way to look at the way the way that technology is kind of developed and deployed and who it affects and you know who gets a say in how technology sort of influences a society or a culture or a community, who gets a say and who doesn't. And ultimately, the Luddites were protesting the fact that they did not get a say in how society was being constituted, how technology was being used to change the constitution of society, how it was being used against them to to, to drive uh, the amount that they got paid for their work down. So it kind of opened this whole new way of looking at things. If we got the Luddites wrong. And in the tech press, you'd hear yeah, that that term float up, somebody who challenges a piece of technology. Oh, you're a Luddite. So we were used to, you know, using this, uh, having this one conception of, of Luddite and having that float around um, and be sort of used to, to dismiss somebody who had a concern about technology as backwards, as silly, as... And so unlocking that kind of felt like one of those revelatory moments where like if we're missing this if we've got the luddites wrong then maybe we've been wrong about the way that we uh uh, the technology impacts people in certain ways all along um so yeah the next five years i I researched that question on kind of both sides of the coin going back to the original luddite story and then looking at you know some of these conflicts today that are happening at amazon uber now you know ai generative ai people that are having real, um, you know, sort of uh, complex uh, and 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 sort of difficult relationships with right now. And it's it's interesting because I think you're you're spot on with that observation that the Luddite term was used fairly dismissively. From from my perspective, I used it tongue in cheek, but also knew a little bit of the story just through. Um, in, in interest in labor movements and that kind of stuff, right? So yeah, for sure. There's overlap too, yeah, right? Like there's one hundred percent overlap. Yeah, because a lot of those things that you said, you know, like you making a conscious decision not to use technology in a certain way, I think that is actually very Luddite, right? Like saying, like, I don't like I I'm not going to have email on my phone because uh, I, you know, I don't want to be available to my boss any more than I have to be. So I'm making this conscious decision to negotiate this relationship to technology in a way that can sometimes fly in the face of, uh, you know, of sort of, you know, corporate expectations or whatever. So yeah, you know, you, that's the, 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 those ways that you cited. Yeah. were are, are, uh, definitely, uh, good, good, good Luddism. And the idea of always being on, right? Like I yeah. think what's interesting when you, when you read through the book and you look at the 
the the Luddite movement and in these labor movements at the time, they were they were advocating for I think the things that would seem very familiar to us, i.e., um, safe working conditions. They were advocating for um, fair pay, fair wages, but they were also advocating for um, time off, like for for a quality of life that was in increasingly missing as the demands of the of the factory um, yeah. um took on more and more of their life so i i'd i'd love for you to parallel that with sort of our our always on culture which which is actually celebrated right it's part of like hustle culture that we're always right. available yeah yeah that's one of the things that i didn't really anticipating being such kind of a through line and such a you know um a resonant uh sort of echo today um and the big one it worked from home is the big one right like so the luddites were uh quick background the luddites were most mostly cloth workers um which was the biggest industrial job in england at, at the time it, it there, there were agri the agriculture and farm laborers were bigger but nobody else england had was uh booming in the cloth trade and so there's hundreds of thousands of of people working in cloth whether that's with lace or wool or cotton um producing uh, and usually it's sort of organized by district so you have a cotton producing town or a wool producing town that kind of thing um but the way that production is organized at the time is it's largely sort of um along the lines of what's called the domestic system where people are working at home um maybe have a have a few machine one or two hand looms or stocking frames, um, you know, and maybe they, they might work one and their son might work another, or they might have a journeyman, but largely it's like being done out of the home and, or either that or in a small shop, like a small, you know, with a, with your, with, with some colleagues and, you know, maybe very little you know, house on a prairie. Yeah. yeah kind, of, kind of, you know, very, yeah, you can, it's, but it is idyllic, like in a lot of ways. And you see this in a lot of the ways that like later as industrialization starts happening, you see them looking back on, on these days and, you know, sort of idealizing them and romanticizing them because it, it, you know, it was true. They might not have been prosperous, but most cloth workers had a good deal of control over their, uh, over sort of their daily routine over their uh over their working life over how they chose to work and when they chose to work um especially you know before the industrial revolution so they're you know they're 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 working in this domestic system the cottage industry you know the term cottage industry comes from from these working cottages where they're where they're working you know, it's not just the fact that when the Industrial Revolution starts to get underway and um, entrepreneurs and factory owners and industrialists start to sort of build those factories and sort of fill them with machines. It's not just the machines that they're protesting. They're not saying, like, I hate that machine because it can do my work faster. No, the the, the cloth workers uh, are, are uncomfortable with what they see taking shape, and that's the fact that they're going to be forced to work in those factories which are these giant buildings that are being organized for pretty much the first time to sort of maximize labor, minimize uh, efficiency, uh, minimize comfort, and uh, maximize control so that they're going to have to go work for an overseer, be told when they can, you know, when they, when they can take a break, when they have to work. It's long hours. They're being paid a little bit less. So they're protesting this entire sort of paradigm shift. And 
the those things that you you know that that you mentioned are very much bound up in this um, even today. So we've all seen sort of this protest among modern workers um, who have gotten used to you know working at home and having some semblance of control over how they organize. They're like, oh, maybe you know I can take that call and do laundry at the same time, or you know what, I'm stressed out. I can just go walk around. I don't have to ask my boss if I can take ten yeah. minutes and just kind of clear my Sneak head. Sneak away to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all you know, they seem like little things maybe, but they're real freedoms. And that it's really it is empowering to have that level of control over your your daily life. And if you can imagine being told for the first time that if you have worked at home, your father worked at home, your father's father worked at home, your father's father. So and like back 200 years. And then it's like, that is going away. Now you have to work for a, a manager who's going to be breathing down your neck, telling you how you can work and when you can work and what you get paid and when you can leave, when you can use the bathroom. So this was like really offensive to them. This was a, this was also, you know, driving a lot of this knee jerk reaction to, uh, to to uh, it, well, it wasn't a knee jerk reaction because they would see it go up in the on the corner of, of town, and maybe that would inspire like some sort of like a, a knee jerk sort of revulsion. But it was well understood that the conditions inside these factories were bad, and that their life would would be changing for the worse. So they had a very good reason to want to oppose this change. And of course, there was on the sort of the you know m micro well and macro economic level inside these factories, production was accelerating and was having a direct impact on sort of their wages. Because if you can do mass production, then you can lower the amount that you pay uh, or that you charge for goods. And then that, yeah. And I, I want to jump on the work from home point a little yeah, bit please. more. Because if we're, if we're kind of thinking to forward momentum, right? So let's let's get us back to our time. Right. Which is which is one of the things I, I think was so excellent about this history that it was it was actually quite easy to to draw these these parallels um, be, between this like industrial revolution, pre-industrial revolution time and our current times, though the technologies are, are quite frankly different. But work from home is one of those things that be, that has become a fraught conversation piece in, in slightly a different way in that. There is a lot of freedom to working from home, but yet there still persists where now there is no separation of of work and home in in many cases. And in the the digital app based world that we live in, many people cannot work from home. Their labor is only out in the world, and it and it's largely controlled by a, a new machine, not a, a, a industrialized machine, but an app, you know, that exists on a phone, but is also independent of the phone. So I'm curious how you think about that reality, because what kept coming up to me as I read the book is there is no machine to break anymore. Right. Like, and I'm, I'm simplifying, but I could break my yeah, iPhone, right. but the app still exists, right? Like Uber still exists, um, regardless yeah. of whether or not I <laughs> smash my phone to bits or not. So it's very different from the movements that we saw there in, in the Luddite movement. So curious to get your thoughts on kind of that jumble of a, of a oh, yeah. prompt. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a real, um, 
it, it's a real consideration and it's one that yeah as you said i mentioned in the book where if you were a uh you know a cropper somebody who smooths out cloth and had a pretty good life and then somebody you know comes along with some investment capital and says i'm going to build a factory on the hill here and fill it with machines that can more or less do your job and might do a worse you know the quality might be worse but we can you know we'll we'll it'll be good enough for the for the customers and we can start to undercut your wages they see that factory going up on the on the on the hill they know where they know the reason that they're getting paid less and they can point to it with their with their finger they can say this is the problem it is uh it is william horsefall the industrialist who is do who who, who is uh amassing uh all these machines and and hiring children to run them and then driving down wages and making it so i can't pay my family I know where it is. So there's a lot of anger pointed sort of, you know, at that at that factory, at that institution, at that at that set of machinery. Um, you know, as you said today, you can't, you know, if you're a, if you're a taxi driver and th- well, so this has actually happened, right? So you're a taxi driver and along comes Uber and, you know, what Uber did first uh, was, you know, use their war chest of, of of investment funds to sort of offer really low rates so they could corner markets. So they come into a new market like New York or something, um, and then they undercut the taxis. They, they're they cheaper than taxis, and they're hiring people, um, you know, who don't need to have medallions or don't need to rent medallions because they're outside the regulatory structure. So they, you know, they undercut the, you know, the, the existing industry. And, you know, Uber knows that it's doing this. It's just, it's, it's strategy and then and then then can can sort of get a foothold in the market and then sort of push so people cab drivers who get angry about this you can get mad at uber but if you see somebody driving an uber car with the little u logo or like the lift or or the lift insignia um you know that's nine times out of ten that's that person's car you know that's not uber you're not gonna you can't get mad and in fact when in france they rolled out the you know they they brought uber to france and they brought out a particularly um offensive product to cab drivers the cab drivers did riot and then they did smash the uh, uber drivers people who are driving ubers well who are who's what are they smashing that's not uber's property they're smashing the property of people who are even less secure or more precarious yeah. than cab drivers Just another There's, another citizen another person another citizen another a lot of, but in but even like a lot of times you know they're migrant workers or people who yeah, are yeah. already struggling that's why you know? i went to person and not citizen because they might not necessarily be a citizen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's so you know, and then you know, with some of the stuff going on with with AI, it's a little more today where you know writers and illustrators and coders are now concerned that AI can be used to do jobs. It's the same kind of thing. You were not there's no there's no like physical object to point to that you could feasibly smash. But what I will say, and this has been sort of a product of, of you know, the sort of the in, the iniquities of what, whatever you want to call late, late capitalism in general, where you've had offshoring and it's, it's all become so complex that if you feel like you're being screwed by big companies, it's, it's so sort of like there are these networks of supply chains and labors and offshoring. And, and it's like, where, you know, where do I get mad? And then you see people People just kind of getting mad in general and then getting mad at, you know, 
immigrants or getting mad at people that don't look like them. There was an interesting study by the Brookings Institute that found that in districts that saw more automation and more offshoring, those districts were more likely than other ones to vote for Trump, presumably because Trump was able to channel some of that sort of diffuse anger at these other socioeconomic forces uh, and, you know, and, 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 and channel it into anger at, you know, at what, like he's very good at doing, getting mad at this and that. But the caveat I will say is that like the, th- the, what the Luddites were always mad about was not the machines. It was the men who were using them to profit at their expense. And we're reaching a new paradigm where that anger is back. There are people who are very much angry at Elon Musk for having nasty conditions in his Tesla factory. Very much angry at, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos for, you know, running his uh, his distribution centers so ruthlessly. There's a new sort of era of finding the new robber baron, and that has, has become probably um, the most sort of salient corresponding factor to to how the Luddites are, or the new Luddites, I guess you yeah. could say, are sort of organizing their their anger. I want to I talk a little bit about mythology, because that's something that's, that's really interesting, I think, in the book, and interesting toward telling stories and, and creating contrast. And so in, in the book, you talk about Ned Ludd, right? This, this character who galvanizes the workers because he takes the hammer to the machine and there's more to the story but nonetheless it's i I think it's widely assumed that this person didn't actually exist right and i i think about robin hood another very famous sort of myth right robs from the rich and gives to the poor and and then on on the race side of things there's the willie lynch letter for those who who may be familiar with that this very famous letter written supposedly by someone named willie lynch who was a plantation owner that was instructing others on how to make perfect docile slaves and the willie lynch letter there's still people who will swear up and down that the willie lynch letter is a, is a real thing and and, and yes, we can have those kind of factual arguments, but I think there is, there are some powerful lessons in the mythology, regardless of whether the thing is actually real. Robin Hood has a has a his has a a place in our history of taking from those who have too much and giving to those who don't. Right, Ned Ludd, yeah. same thing. Luddites, Willie Lynch letter kind of keeps you to keep keep your eyes open. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I'm curious your your thoughts on the power of mythology. These kind of mythologies went also, in my mind, juxtaposed against the mythology of innovation. That you know, myth. We we can only progress as a society, whatever society you're in, if it is tied to technological advancement. So to the extent that you are against that you are also against our progress. So there's two kind of myths going on there, and I'm curious as to how you see them playing against one another. Yeah, well, it's a really interesting question, and it's it's one that hasn't really come up on my press tour, uh, so I'm glad you asked it, because it's I know, my really, friend. really interesting. There this ain't, a, regu- this ain't the- a regular stop on your press tour, my friend. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're diving deep here, diving deeper. So it's why is it that... This myth of Robin Hood, which every kid knows, 
which yeah there's a you know a do-gooder who lives in the forest who ambushes the rich and then takes that and gives it to the poor why why does this myth proliferate in its in 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 its original form more or less you know there was maybe a real robin hood like figure who really did kind of do this and there is real linkage to 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 the sort of the luddite mythology they're both coming from the same region they're both based you know luddism erupts in nottingham first um where robin hood hailed from as well but that question so why so why does this mythology live live on while the luddite mythology which uh also has similar trappings somebody taking a hammer um as as you sort of mentioned the the luddite mythology is that there was a um there was an apprentice worker named ned ludd who was a kid and he was uh being worked uh for, for by by his boss who thought he wasn't working productively enough so the boss had him whipped and he flies into a rage understandably so takes a hammer and smashes the machine that he had uh, been forced to work on, and he flees into the to Sherwood Forest, just like Robin Hood. Then there's the whole, you know, actual Luddite uprising that sort of followed. They, you know, they probably made up this story at the time, but they were super popular at the time. People would come out and cheer the Luddites, the real Luddites, as they were smashing the machines, as they were sort of standing up to uh, to, to to the factory owners. And it was, by all counts, a fully, you know, popular uh, movement where there were folk songs and hymns and poems and Lord Byron is writing poems about the Luddites. So why, given all of that, why does this myth get crumpled up, distorted and thrown into the waste bin? Why, why are we allowed to have this one myth where there's somebody robs from the rich to give to the poor, but we're not allowed to have this other myth where somebody destroys the machinery of oppression. And I think, you know, I don't have the full answer except for the fact that, you know, Robin Hood, the real Robin Hood never became a movement to the extent that it was a real threat to sort of industrial power or a real threat to the elites. Uh, the Luddites really were. So the state had to win this fight and it won it both by deploying troops to crush the Luddites when they were uh, waging their campaign, shooting them down in the streets, passing laws that could hang people for breaking machinery. And then there was this other element which the you know the crown prince the prince regent who's the de facto king of england at the time is writing these proclamations basically calling the luddites deluded and you know so the mythology the counter mythology to what was going on starts there and it's really interesting to me that we you know we don't we we don't learn about ned ludd as kids we do learn about robin hood which theoretically is also sort of an anti-elite sentiment right like you're stealing from the rich so i'm sure like a lot of elites would rather the robin hood myth go away too but it's also a little more diffuse and you can kind of have like how do you talk if you're actually you know, endorsing a uh, a mythology that says, well, there are cases when you are justified in smashing the machinery of the people who are controlling you, then that maybe feels a little more dangerous. And so there's a lot of reasons I think that we, we could spend some time trying to unpack, but it's just worth underlining. We still have the Robin Hood mythology as it was meant to be. 
just the British state, especially, and then subsequent generations of, uh, you know, of, of, of tech titans and interested parties have kept the letter, the letter counterfactual alive ever since. And, you know, I think that that Silicon Valley has very much glommed onto that same mythology. Like you said, there was a halo period when Silicon Valley was considered as paragons of industrial virtue, right? They're doing things that are making our lives better. They're growing while doing good. All, all the branding, even, even a company like Uber and, and, and many others that kind of came along at the advent of the gig economy, right? That we're giving you more of your time, right? Like yeah. you, you have this asset that's sitting there, a car, most cars are parked, spend their day parked, right? They're, they're not being utilized, but we're giving, you're empowering you to go out there and drive as little as you much as you want or as much as you want, right? Airbnb, same thing. You have a, a sharing room, economy. Yeah, yeah, in your house. Yeah. You can now yeah. turn that into an asset, that empty space, right? So I'm curious how those stories become, the, become dominant stories even in the face of the dislocation of labor that that is always at the at the core of of what's going on there yeah well you know it's so interesting to me like so i my one of my greatest my my two greatest shames as a as a tech journalist um in the early days i think are not being critical enough of the sharing economy, I think I even did an article or two that 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 called it that and accepted it on this because again, this was a time when the terms were very different. When you know there 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 what there wasn't sort of a uh and like any sort of apparatus that was consistently critiquing the what you know what the what the tech companies were doing in any way than was this good or bad for business or what so when uber comes along with its and lyft with when airbnb as you say with this sharing economy idea you know it looks good on paper it really does i remember writing about like product service systems i think they were called they were like a descendant of that that principle that you were that you were nodding to where they you know you have a bunch of stuff that's not being used and it it'll be better though i mean and it is remarkable like that was one of their early claims was that you know this will be good for cities this will be good for emissions this will be a uh, you know a boon to the environment and now we know it was like almost like the exact opposite that it inspired inspired more people to take more trips by themselves, get more cars on the road, more congestion. So I think it's a little bit of a mix where we didn't really know how it would play out or how it would be used. So there was sort of an opportunity to sort of write this story. And that's clearly what they were doing. Um, but that's not to say that it was like a you know this malignant conspiracy. I think a lot of the people working for those companies thought that these were genuine, uh, you know, genuinely good ideas that that may in fact end up taking cars off the road. The key is they didn't interrogate their claims, and then they refused to interrogate them as as things turn out to play a certain way. And this is true of most of our big tech cohort these days, maybe most famously Facebook. Like, we're going to connect the world, and this is a good thing. And then when things start breaking, and when we say, like, wow, this 
platform sure is being used for harassment and misinformation and you know propaganda from dictatorships there there's never any serious sort of period where where the company actually sort of re, you know it's gotten too big it's got to make a profit it's got you know board members to appease the ceo does it's got all these imperatives that, that you know that and it and it and once these ships are going it's really hard to sort of you know to try to steer them in a different direction but that's really does attest to the power of this mythology that we imbued with these companies whether they imbued themselves with uh 20 years ago because some of them are still coasting on the fumes of that goodwill and some of it is still so powerful that it does still eclipse criticism apple apple is still beloved and has a very positive vibe um and granted it is not made as many controversial decisions as some of its com- competitors but it's not like it's supply chain is without problems or oh, you yeah, know absolutely but, you know yeah and 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 that's what's interesting like how much of this is an eternal argument of times are changing and we're kind of having the ebb and flow of quote-unquote progress and and how much of it is truly different given the types of of innovations we're we're talking about when I was when I was reading your book, I was reminded of, um, I you know I love Robert A. Caro. He very famously wrote, um, or is writing. I hope still writing the um, <laughs> the Lyndon B. Johnson biography, and it's an expansive work that he's done. There's four books published, and Lyndon Johnson's still not president. So that kind of puts it in perspective <laughs> as to as to where we are. In, in in his writing, right? He's like the historical George R.R. R. Martin of taking long to to write something. <laughs> his is due to exhaustive research. Yeah. George R.R. R. Martin is just like Scrooge McDuck, right? He's just jumping into yeah. a vault Who of knows? money at this point, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I I remember in likely the first book that he's recounting a story of, you know, LBJ grew up in a hard scrabble-like, very rural Texas, like not so-called sexy Texas. No, nothing in Texas is sexy to me, but generally when you think Dallas and all these kind of big cities, LBJ did not grow up in that environment, right? And he he talked about when electricity first started coming to the hills, the the hard hills of, of um, Texas where he lived and his mom was finally able to get some sort of motorized washing machine. And the hard labor she used to do of like washing clothes in a fucking creek, like old school against a rock or some shit was gone, right? <laughs> like now she could use this sort of like what probably was some very early stage washing machine and it made her life better. So that for some reason in my brain anchored on that story and, you know, some progress, some innovation is good. Right. So yes. how do we how do we balance that reality of not wanting unsafe conditions for labor for laborers? You know, and in your book, we're talking about like child labor. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was particularly brutal then. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's particularly brutal. Yeah. But then we have states today like Florida trying to make it easier for kids to Man. work in similar conditions, right? So, so, so that's- originally it was like this caveat that I would give in this press tour. It's like, well, look, things weren't as bad. So like we didn't, you know, child, la- and then it's like, well, 
actually the headlines in Florida, in like Oklahoma. Yeah, there's just meatpacking plants found in L.A. where we're supposed to have really good labor protections and in California where it's like, yeah, we got children working at meatpacking plants. We got children working at a poultry plant. We got it's like it is there. It's not an accident that we're also seeing this boom and this concentration of sort of, you know, of, of, of big tech. And they're just the biggest companies now. And then the resurgence and some they're not unrelated. Right. You know, so that being said, like to, I did want to like I, I kept wanting to sort of inter- just to sort of underline this point that is really important. And that's that the Luddites were absolutely not fighting against progress. They were not they the mach- it was 100 percent the way that the machinery was being used and that that they couldn't afford the automating machinery. So it was being purchased by people who would then set it against their interests. Like, th- I think. There are a number of key sort of moments in this history where it's you could actually look and some, there's actually a, an economic historian who did a fun uh, sort of speculative counter history. Like, what if the Luddites had won? Because this is like if they win this battle. And again, that goes back to why we were talking about the mythology, why it's so important that uh, we misremember what the Luddites were all about so that we don't keep asking all these questions. It's that there could have there very well could have been an alternate model of economic deployment of the machinery, right? What if there was, there is a feasible, you know, fork in the road where it's not the industrialists coming with like their Scrooge McDuck bags of money, buying the machinery and setting it against the workers, but instead showing up and saying, look, these machines, especially with your expertise, could probably make your lives easier. Like if we found a way to sort of situate these machines in the community and I will take on, you know, more of the risk and maybe a, a bigger stake in uh, the ownership because I'm buying them and, and you know, whatever. But I want to make sure that you guys who know how to use these machines, you know, can, you know, benefit from this new regime of automation. Like, what if we figured out a new configuration? What if it wasn't just I win, you lose? So I think that negotiating those economic deployments and those economic relationships is is crucial because there are so many great technologies. The Luddites were not against the technology. There's a section in my book that as you know that I that I dedicate to sort to all the different like policy proposals that they put forward 200 years ago where it's like, well, you know, okay, for machines are going to come, why don't we, you know, tax a length of cloth produced by machine that is more because it produces it more efficient. We could use that for like jobs retraining programs. It sounds just like Andrew Yang or something, you know. It's it it it's it's remarkable that there so we are i think you know as long as we hold on to this model that we've got where it's going to be this top down sort of you know somebody in the back in the day it was it was sort of the the elites and the aristocrats you know allowing you know certain uh, industrialists to sort of use their land and 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 ha- and curry favor and and become more you know concentrate their power that way. Today it's we have venture capital that can you know and again not all venture capital is bad. Far from it. They invest in a lot of great stuff, but you really do have an issue when you have a kind of a handful of firms that have an ungodly amount of money and they can choose you know who's going to build the next generation of technology. And, you know the problems are not just you know 
related, you know, we also saw this year, barely anyone remembers because it was a billion years ago, but we had the problem with Silicon Valley Bank. And that's when, you know, you have. I, yeah. I, I remember that very well <laughs> for, for a <laughs> lot of reasons. <laughs> but um, I'm glad you you mentioned the the VC reality and 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 how that is shaping things, because I think very famously or infamously, Mark Andreessen wrote his techno optimism essay. And and this was, we're recording this in December. Maybe this was two months ago, I feel like. I feel like this was was October. Okay, October. So yeah, we're exactly two months. And, you know, these are the the ravings of a complete fascist. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) and, and, um, you know, my words, not not yours. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but anybody who knows me knows I have absolutely no love for someone like Mark Andrews. And I honest, I'm not throwing that word around lightly. I think he is a eugenicist fascist. Yeah. Like and those, look who it, he, look who in, Matt, do you, I don't know if you remember this, but he actually name checks the Luddites as people, as somebody who would stand in the way of his program. Exactly. So that's why that I wanted is, to bring him up because the, yeah. the essay, you know, it's it's not in front of me, but I, I read it several times when it came out, and I was oh, man. I'm outraged sorry. at the at the idea that this is con- that this is taken seriously. But there's acolytes to this person who reads this and and says, as horrified as I am reading it, they have the complete opposite reaction, right? So how do we counteract? those values because they literally have optimism in the name, right? This techno optimism <laughs> idea, which I think juxtaposes someone like myself as being a, I don't know, a techno downer, right? <laughs> like, you know, like whatever they would <laughs> classify me as. So I'm I'm yeah. curious, like his well, I'm sure they call are, you a Luddite. Yeah, yeah. They would call you a Luddite. Yeah. yeah. Or or um, worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. She, yeah. I mean he is uh, I think we're fortunate in one way, and that's he's a particularly odious figure. I think at this point he, you know, I, he's become desperate. This the way that I look at this document is not that like you know, here's like I'm stepping forth with this with these you know tomes like Moses to like you know br- you know sh- show the world the way, and it's this great. It reeks of desperation to me. So like, why do you have to have this sort of sprawling? angry, as you said, like fascism infused document where you're kind of, it's pretty clear you're not just trying to put a portrait of a future, a vision for a future uh, forward, but you're trying to, you know, angrily swat down people who are, you know, questioning uh, the way that you've wielded power all this time. So I, for that, for that document, it's almost like in a in a league of its own, I think, because for a while it, you know, there were people who were like, you know, we got to be optimistic about technology. We got to be, you know, we have to sort of, you know, paint this utopian future. And, you know, Neil Stevenson, you know, as much as I like Neil Stevenson's fiction, he's been involved in a lot of these sort of efforts to like sort of. You know, like, let's not think, let's not think about all the bad stuff. Let's like make fictions that inspire people and move the, you know, he's done some weird stuff with like the with with the 
Arizona State University's uh, like this future futurist program and all you know and that's I think there's like at least a sliver of validity to that like you know you don't want it to be all doom and gloom there is a value in imagining uh, uh, you know uh, the, the ways that future can be better but that's in Mark Andreessen's case that's like specifically what this is not about he's he is trying to shore up basically these as you said these acolytes the people who will sort of you know buy in buy into this program and he's trying to make the case that we should basically shut up all the critics we should get back to building the technology the way it has been built the last 20 years that's the that's the most important thing that stands out to me is that it's like you know Technology, you know, is has done all of these great things, and if we don't, if we stop building it, you know, well, we risk all that. We, we risk regressing, and we risk all. But that's not. It, it's a false. It's 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 a false formulation. What he's trying to do is just box out his box out his critics, and he's trying to sort of reinstill a faith in this venture capital model that excludes so many people, specifically his venture capital model, where only a handful of people, people that mostly look like him and think like him and act like him, get to make the shots on how technology is developed. And that's why he's trotting out all these, you know, there's that long list of people, I also don't have it in front of me, that he's like name checking as impediments to technology's progress. To his way way forward, right? We got to look out to for his these program type of people yeah. right because we mean well but we are misguided right like <laughs> you're right you know. and there's only a certain part you're ex- exactly right to point out like the fascist undertones in this because there's only a certain uh tier of people who are uh enlightened enough to know how technology really works and how it should be built that's him and his cohort everybody else like means well and they're they're criticizing that which they don't understand so they should step out of the way, let the money flow, let us continue to sort of build products the way that we want to build them and, you know, and 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 stop asking questions. I think ultimately, I think that, you know, it may have rallied a few of those true believers that we were talking about. But I ultimately think that that we're past that. I think it's a losing battle for him. I think what there has been a huge sort of groundswell in support this year specifically, you know, in not abolishing or like sending any technology to the scrap heap, but challenging the assumptions on which AI, for example, is built or a generative AI model. So now we, and that's all healthy stuff to do, right? Like, was it built on plagiarized works? Were artists or writers given consent when they're building this stuff? Are there biases in there? Of course, the people who stand to profit immediately off of this don't want to answer those questions. But yeah, let's. I think anybody in who has an interest in living in a society where this stuff really does benefit us all, it's not shut it down. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out a way to build this stuff. The problem is that if we do that, then maybe right now Mark Andreessen doesn't benefit, and I think that's okay. I don't know personally. if there's too many worlds <laughs> in that in that space where he doesn't benefit, just because of the sheer power of the the wealth, right? Like there's some of right. these folks yeah. are are so wealthy and so well connected that there's you know one step forward, half a step back. Like they're kind of always in the mix, but putting him to the side, I'm I'm curious about the pushback. 
right? And it doesn't need to be a, an AI-specific conversation, but I think AI is one of those um, mediums right now that is sort of at the forefront, right? So we'll kind of use it as a proxy, as a as a proxy for probably larger technology arguments in that it's when I look at someone like Andreessen, yes, he has a very particular perspective. He would fall into this techno optimism camp. But then there's also like the kind of techno doomerism camp that says, oh, you know, the threat to the world is this is an existential threat, right? We need to solve this because it's going to be like Terminator, the machines are going to take over. And on the surface, that seems like they're having a different argument, but they're actually really having the same conversation because they're ignoring the the present day threat that leaves out and marginalizes so many people against this seemingly existential threat that exists somewhere in the future that may or may not happen, right? But because they're they're at least highlighting a threat of, you know, Skynet and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't need Skynet when I have an, an AI <laughs> that that generates images that that are used in law enforcement, right? Against people that look like me, right? Like the the threat is more present to many people than it is to to these lunatics, right? So I, I'm curious about <laughs> do we have an opposition that's actually being listened to, or do we have an opposition that's actually just the same, just the co- a different coin, a different side of the same coin? but they're really not saying anything that different. I think, first of all, I think that a lot of this apocalypticism is very much encouraged by the companies themselves, right? Like Sam Altman and OpenAI in particular, they just really welcome this because if they have that debate, if they have, oh, well, like we got to be careful. He's always, okay, at this point, he just like really drives me nuts. Always on these press tours with that furrowed brow and he's just like, oh, like, I, you know, we're we're trying to be careful. We might not get anything, but it's just so much is at stake. We could destroy the world. And it's like, man, if you really believe that, then you would not be the CEO of the company that's selling it to Microsoft. Uh, it's really, it's 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 really frustrating. Uh, but that I feel like that did sort of dominate a lot of the debate, like you were talking about the Skynet debate. But and it's that's good for them because it does two things. Like you said, it moves the goalposts so that we don't we're not having conversations about how it's affecting work, how it's affecting uh, you know the biases, and you know how it's um, being piped into police departments and, uh, you know, and being used by the IDF, for example. So it's it's like, no, no, it's a future, it's a future and sort of philosophical level debate that they get to have instead of, you know, what, what are the actual ramifications of what they're doing today? So that's very much by design, I think. And then number two, it imbues the whole thing with this sense of power, right? Like if it's, if our technology could destroy the world, then you, don't you want to like buy it so you can like send more marketing emails until the apocalypse comes, you know? <laughs> Uh, so it's very it's it's very much a strategic decision that I think that they've made and that they're you know I think it's finally going to run out of gas. I just the last column I wrote for the Times kind of argues that you know especially with the board shakeup and now instead of you know careful AI scholars on the on the board of OpenAI, there's like Larry Summers who's just yeah. you know just the pro Larry, you know just kind of you know wants to oh, accelerate the economy. Larry at any Summers cost. is He's like just a, yeah a bad penny that I just can't seem to get rid of. Like, 
you know, I, this this dude has you're been sure you're not the only one who feels that way. Oh my god, it's like can can we just get rid of Larry Summers? Like I'm so unclear as to I mean, I know his career path, but I'm like, dude, you've always sucked. And it's amazing that you that you still <laughs> managed to be to just hang on. Like, I mean, I can't believe especially yeah, with this, especially with like the big uh, one, a big no- and very well justified knock against a lot of these AI companies is it's like so male dominated. And then so they fire the women on the board and then they replace them with a guy who has literally said on the record that he doesn't think women's brains are good enough for science. Like it's, he, I mean, that was years ago, but he, he did very much say it. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, it's like, why would you put that guy on your, on your, all of this is to say, it is it is an interesting moment and the opposition i think i think it's it's easy to get deflated by this stuff because as you've pointed out a couple times already there's just so much power and so much wealth in silicon valley and pushing back against it can feel like rolling a boulder up a hill and you know they nobody wants to look like a you know, like, like they're like, they're just kind of screaming all the time. No one wants to look like they're unhinged. And it can kind of feel that way sometimes to some people who are like really trying to get the eyeballs on the right stuff. But I do think that more so than at any point, since I've been a tech journalist, there is thoughtful and correctly, you know, that doesn't not don't mean that to sound like uh, paternalistic or anything, but I, there are, there is resistance at, pointed at the right places, making compelling arguments, raising red flags, winning some battles. The Hollywood writers who w- successfully kicked the studio's ability to use AI to automate work out of the equation in their contract that they won that was a big one. There there is like a willingness to sort of at the. The class action lawsuits are also interesting from the Authors Guild and from illustrators. So I think like the, these are all like very legitimate and very encouraging signs that, that there's more resistance. Yeah. And I actually want to want to talk about that resistance, right? Because you, you highlighted two examples already, meaning the Hollywood writer strike, the Hollywood actors strike. Um, but there's also labor movements that have that have had, you know, 2023 has been a great year for labor movements, um, both in in automotive automotive industry. We're seeing attempts to organize within Amazon. We're seeing attempts to organize within Starbucks, and and we're seeing this organization also happening in rural communities, communities that are not often think in in red states. And so I'm curious about diving into a little bit more of that idea of the the a resistance against these notions because like you said i think um it's much harder to direct your anger at all of these sort of labyrinths of of ills and i think it can also feel that way when you're organizing right so so labor is all about organizing and it can feel harder to do that so i want to get your your thoughts on kind of the present day labor and organization perspective against you know big tech for sure um i think there's actually three things to say here one w- w- that we hit on earlier the that since that halo has faded and it has been shown just how um often 
the the news the that the CEOs have had not had their workers' interests in mind. It's become that you know it, it's not like there's a bunch of Steve Jobs that everybody loves. It's it is Elon Musk. It's Jeff Bezos. It's the you know the the CEOs of the of the automotive companies, and those are they're they're being you know sort of used as organizing tools because a lot of people are angry at them. Um, and anger is a great motivator and always has been. I mean, people railed against the first robber barons and, and were effective in sort of mobilizing labor movements um, when you have like that sort of quote unquote villain at the top. You know, number two, I would say that AI is uniquely um, useful, in, and you got to be careful as somebody who thinks about this stuff, because again, the, what we were just discussing prior is this sort of urge a lot of us have to sort of equate AI with this runaway Skynet type thing. So you don't want to encourage that misconception. However, a lot of people are really uneasy about AI in general. And I argued in one of my columns that that was a big contributor to the success of the writer's strike because that wasn't originally what it was about. It was one of their concerns. But as soon as that got zeroed into, you'd go down to the picket lines and people would have signs that are like, Alexa's not, can't, will not replace me. Or, you know, AI can't, you know, generate the next script of succession or what. That became the focal point, and there's a reason why, and it taps into an anxiety we have of being replaced. And you can argue that you know that it you you know you don't want to encourage the perception that that AI is actually going to replace anybody's job directly one to one. It's not that powerful. It can't just become you. It's not going to replace your agency and who you are. But it can be used by management as an excuse to like automate part of your job, pay you less, in some cases kind of do a bad job of replace. So there is real uh there is a real set of anxieties to tap into and across the board. Yeah, the recent Sports Illustrated um, incident is a great example. Perfect yeah. example, right? Like they just got some computer generated pictures, AI generated photos of journalists that don't exist, and then created sort of this, you know, gobbledy. Not, I'm not going to say the articles were gobbledy. I'm sure they were legible, right? but but they were not written by people. But the perception. Yeah, they were awful. Yeah, yeah. One of them literally was like, you know, vol you know, volleyball can be a difficult sport, especially if you do not have a volleyball. And it's like, yeah, that great. That's why I turned to Sports Illustrated for that kind of commentary. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly the kind of you know. And in some cases, Sports Illustrated is really public facing, right? It's been under scrutiny because it's had uh, because it was this iconic brand, and you know, it's full of journalists who are very good at finding other journalists to like air their grievances with. So those kind of stories do tend to blow up, but you can bet, you can bet it's happening in ag agencies at, uh, at companies that use copywriting and graphic design. It's, it is happening um, everywhere <clears throat> to varying degrees right now. And it is, you know, very much worth sort of uh, from a labor perspective, tapping into those concerns and and trying to, you know, meet with folks and try to organize. And, and we're seeing folks like artists or illustrators or copywriters, freelancers who work at home, who don't historically have this kind of, uh, um, you know, a relationship are coming together in, in, in solidarity under this 
the shared fear that AI will sort of degrade or, or erase a lot of their work. So it is it is sort of seeding a lot of um, a, a lot of productive um, opposition. Um, I'm sure some people would say that like. You know, I, I, some folks might think that there's, uh, you know, too much opposition. You don't, but I, yeah, I think if the, la- the 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 lessons of the last ten years are, we could have done with a lot more informed opposition before we got to Facebook conquering the world, before we got to, you know, Amazon being sort of the number one employer in the United States besides Walmart. Uh, we want yeah. more, you Already know, more not a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more inquiry, more democracy, more friction uh, to use the Silicon Valley uh, parlance uh, is is a good thing at this point and and we're seeing that. Um Absolutely. and there is a new I yeah. I just met with um some of the uh, leadership of the California Federation of Labor, which is like the big umbrella organization that sort of works to sort of address labor's concerns in in the capital in California uh, for like statewide legislation. And they say that there's been a real sea change. Um, again, going back to sort of the way that tech used to be perceived, um, organized labor, workers, people used to just kind of want to be on board, like say Google would say, okay, well you got to jump, and they'd say how high, like right, how how do we meet your demand so we don't get left behind? And uh, this uh, organizer at the Teamsters was saying like we lost ground on so many things by having this attitude that tech was just in, innately good for us. We lost like a generation worth of of of, of, of good sort of negotiation. Um, and we lost out on wages, we lost out on protections, and we're not gonna do that again. So when they see, you know, these self-driving car companies, for one thing, coming to try to automate, um, you know, uh, to taxis, trying to automate delivery vehicles, um, they're much more involved in the fight. And they're, you know, putting legislation, things like, you know, like you got to have a driver in in vehicles right now because they're clearly not safe. We just saw how a cruise vehicle pinned a driver, or a pedestrian rather, underneath it and yeah, kept absolutely. going. So let's get some common sense legislation that's also good for workers. So there's that new, new sort of, uh, you know, sense that that it's okay to oppose tech when these are essential things and crossing boundaries. Oh, absolutely. And it's always odd to me when, you know, I want to I want to get you out on on this before we get to off the dome and, and the drop is, you know, so many of these things seem like common sense. But as they say, common sense isn't that common, right? Like when I read, <laughs> you know, you know, Back to the Future, we've had this thing about self, self, you know, driving cars and all the rest of it. And even the Jetsons, right? Like when are cars going to fly, right? Like, say, you know, it, it, it seems like when we talk about the future, as it, it never really seems futuristic to me. It, it just, it seems actually quite reductive, right? Because we're still talking about mobility through the same lens of this, like whether the car is electric, whether it's self-driving, it's still a fucking car, right? Like you're, you're not taking me someplace (laughs) that I've not gone. I could recognize it, right? Before there were cars, people couldn't recognize a car, right? They had a wagon, you had a horse, they knew what wheels were, but this idea of, of something moving without an animal husbandry was not really in the cards, right? So that's a leap forward. These other things seem less like leap forward. So I'm using this to to kind of get to this 
his final question. Very early on in the book, you talk about this, this great contrast, right? This idea that many people felt like the world is coming to an end, you know, right before like the industrial revolution. And I'm curious as we kind of sum up, you know, with the sort of financialization that we're seeing that is so extreme, you know, even that Sports Illustrated story that we kind of alluded to in passing, if you if you trace a little bit of the the corporate structure of Sports Illustrated, it's like it's fewer and fewer people because it's just it's a it's a brand Sports Illustrated that just passed to one private equity shop and sold for parts into another one. And now we're just distilling it down to clicks and how much can we sell on our, you know, all these things that we're just slicing that little piece smaller and smaller and smaller till it becomes like, well, a computer can do this, right? Simplifying. How that, that when I was reading this idea of the great contrast, I just kept thinking about today right where workers and and people are are feeling just as precarious right we the ec- the economy is doing what it's doing but no one feels like it's doing a like it's doing well right despite the economists give us the numbers and they're like you just don't understand right and people are like well i understand i have money right um so i'm curious yeah are you Feeling that, seeing that, am I off base here? So I don't know if there's a really good question, but I think there's a parallel to present day. And then I'll get us into the final two segments of this show. <laughs> no, I think you're completely right. I think I think there it's I think it is somewhat cyclical. I don't think people are always having these same sort of you know the scale of the of the of, of the apocalyptic thinking may vary, but I think it ter- certainly comes in tandem with these moments where you have uh, you know moments of sort of scary technological change combined with with um, great income inequality, which is two ways that like these that these two moments that were are very much tethered together. You have this 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 new use this new paradigm paradigm shifting use of technology to change work happening at a time when there is just this incredible gulf of um, income inequality and power. And that that also, especially, you know, it's there's like it looks like the it's been a little bit of a corrective over the last year or two in sort of uh, inequality here in the U.S. But that we while I was writing this book over the last 10 years, it's just there's just been this incredible gulf um, that I've had historians you know, relate directly to the 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 first industrial revolution. So this that we're nominally in something that resembles yet another industrial revolution, and I say that not because we suddenly have. Um, this technology that's going to explode and get out of control in ways that, you know, that we don't understand the technology itself. But we have a lot of companies who are th- hoping to use it in that way and to start new companies and to start disrupting labor in this way. So they may feel that they're going to try to do that and that they're going to try to accelerate, um, uh, you know, these work disruptions um, on a scale that that is 
not unlike the first one. So when you have these, and it, you know, this has happened before, automate like for the first sort of, you know, boom of automation uh, 50 or so years ago in the US uh, or, or before that in the auto plants, um, you know, as the, after the Luddites, you know, there is 50 years of, of, of boom and busts in, in mechanization there too. So you often see these, these sort of, uh, these, these, these cultural responses that are in tandem with it. So no, I'm not surprised that, that that we're thinking as we're thinking, you know, today, and and that you know it can, ha- it, it just it echoes again and again. And I think it is really interesting, and we should all be interrogating the ways that that sort of links up to the regime of technological development that we have had more or less ever since. And we've talked about that a couple of times in this conversation. But my theory would be that as long as we have this top-down model of technological development in an economic context that we have today, then you're going to see these boom and busts and that you're going to arise at these you're uh, you're going to arrive at these moments like today where you have, you know, inequality, environmental calamity, uh, you know, social issues and then uh, the promise of a great technological disruption that kind of is like the thunderbolt that then can sort of ignite everything. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating stuff. I love I loved not not this this conversation but the book. Like I think the book is amazing. Before we get into ending and praise of the book, we have two sections of the show. The first is off the dome and off the dome are just a couple of rapid fire questions. It could be at least two, maybe more, but in this case, it's two um, rapid fire questions, kind of first thought that comes to your mind kind of thing. So the first off the dome question is if you had to delete all of your apps off your phone, except one, which one would you keep? <laughs> uh Probably notes or Google app, uh, Google uh, Docs, uh, just so I would have somewhere to sort of write down notes as I go. Okay, <laughs> that's a good one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most boring one, maybe, but that's like I always find like I, I'm like, does I often have this thought? I'm like, does anybody do else use like notes? I feel like they haven't updated notes in like five years that hasn't fundamentally changed ever. But I'm it's like, probably oh, why it works. I, well. I have all these. I have all these. Yeah, I think so. Because some of the other things that I would be like glad to see go, like okay, great. If I had to get you know all the social media apps or e- email, I should. You've inspired me. I want to get rid of uh, my Gmail app too. But like, I really wouldn't like miss anything else. But I would still want to have that ability to. I guess if the camera counts too, you always want to have the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I was thinking more to downloadable things, not just the thing that's come with the phone. So we'll we'll pass on the camera. We'll go with the ones that you mentioned. Those are fair <laughs> enough. And and the second okay. off the dome question, okay. second and last is, you know, in keeping with picking up hammers and breaking things, right? If you can pick up your your hammer and break any machine, what would that machine be and why? Ooh. Um, so it depends. Like if, if it's a, if it's like, a, so I've been doing these things called the Luddite tribunals. I don't know if you saw but where I get a bunch of, it's like thinkers and scholars and people to sort of consider individual, you know, products of technology. And we discuss whether or not they're, uh, you know, a boon or a drain on society. And if they're bad, if they're net bad, then I do have a hammer 
Do I have it in my room? No, I don't have it in my room. I think it's in the back of the car. Uh, and then we, we we smash it. We've we've done a couple of these, and it's really fun. And they're you know some of the products to me are like no brainers. Like the Amazon Ring doorbell for me is something that yeah that's an that's an obvious smash. This thing that opens up a surveillance portal that feeds images to your local police department that is made by Amazon, one of the most unethical you know sort of uh, companies in terms of its you know labor policies to me that's like you know that i i think i would i would smash the amazon ring cover if, if we're talking like a, a machine that i have access to that oh, we yeah, could just absolutely. feasibly do that would be that but that said i you know i do think that we're you know i don't know if you've read um how to blow up a pipeline the um Andreas i, I haven't but it's come up it's come up on the show quite a few times which means i have to get this book <laughs> but but go ahead <laughs> so yeah, so it just I think, you know, in terms of like the climate crisis, it the basic argument your readers may be familiar or your viewers may be familiar with listeners. I got it. The third try. Third third your, try your, your your media consumers, that's right. Um it's it argues that, you know, the climate crisis has we've known about it for 30 years now and and attempts to legislate the issue have failed and governments are way behind. So it may be time to do some good old fashioned sabotage climate Luddism, um, right? Like being Luddites for, for the climate and smashing, you know, oil pipelines or oil infrastructure. So like that becomes another interesting question, because if you have companies that are so unethical in in Malm's case, he's the, the the oil companies and you know Exxon as well as like the refiners and all that that you could be morally justified in smashing that machinery. I think there's a case to be made that you know uh, you know we're supposed to be winding down carbon emissions to a certain point by the end of this decade. Yeah, we're nowhere good luck with near that. close. Um, nowhere near close. If if yeah if, yeah seriously, I, I typically don't answer my own questions, so, but I have to have be on the record. And say I would definitely smash like leaf blowers. I hate them. <laughs> like it's 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 one of the Man, things. Man, they're supposed to be illegal. <laughs> they're supposed to be illegal in LA where I live and everywhere. Just leaf blower, leaf blower. It's like guys, they're the worst. Stop. Yeah, it's, thing ever. you just see them like walking down the street, blowing like a pile of leaves. You've just moved the leaves from one, and they're just. You know the diesel fumes and all that. Yeah, yeah it, it smells I, terrible. I, I, I second that. It disturbs the peace. It is noise pollution. It's terrible. At my next Luddite tribunal, I'm bringing a leaf blower. Yeah, I want to be there. Good one. A leaf blower is a good one to put. Yeah. Please invite me to that <laughs> okay, one. I'll I would you know. love to break apart a fucking leaf blower. That would, nothing would make me happier than to smash a fucking leaf blower. I I detest that. <laughs> so I want to get us to the drop, and and the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with with my listeners. I got it right on the first time that they might want to check out. And and my drop is a book. It's called The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, and it's a, a really interesting look at. America's kind of anti-communist um, movements in Southeast Asia and and kind of parallels that to our foreign our current foreign policy and kind of social structures of of today. So it's a really good book, really interesting read, and can't recommend it enough. I'm going out on with a book this time. Again, the Jakarta Method and by Vincent Bevins. And that's my drop. So you're up, my friend. Drop away. 
Yeah. He also has another book out this year, I think, that I really want to read uh, as well. It's called If We Burn, and it's a look at why the social movements of the last 10 years didn't succeed as much as maybe some. I'm writing that down right now. If We Burn, semi-bonus drop. (laughs) That's right. Bonus drop. You could do a a Vincent Bevan's doubleheader. (laughs) Um, Since we've talked so much about gig work today, actually, I'll do a book, too. My friend Joanne McNeil has her her speculative fiction book uh, debut uh, just came out, I think, last month. It's called Wrong Way, and it's a sort of like a kind of a Ballard-esque sort of fiction about a, a precarious worker who uh, it goes to work at a, at a at a gig company of the future. Um, and it's really it's it's a beautiful book. You know, there's. There's been there's been so much so much good good work and, and on the on the tech book front coming out this year I could just like I could do, I could give you ten I could give you a t- I could give you ten drops ten yeah, but I'll, I'll keep we'll, it to the one we'll go with the one we'll go because that sounds like a good one um, <laughs> yeah. you know um, I'm Brian I really want to want to thank you for for being on a deep dive with me again I think the the book is is a is a must read for anyone who's trying to really get their hand around the history of a very important movement that I think still resonates with us today, politically, socially, economically. Um, The book in full title, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And and Brian, thank you so much for joining me on The Deep Dive. Ah, Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Loved it. Cheers. Thanks, brother. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.